Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Animal Chat with me, Harry Ekman. And me, Matt Payne. How you doing, Matt? I'm good, Harry. I'm very, very good. Um, before we get on to something I want to share with you, as last week you know, we put out, I think, quite a clear message to all our listeners. Yeah, the message that said, please contact us, yeah. let us know where you are, how you heard about us, any kind of information. Yeah. How many responses did we get? Well, let me just get let me just get all the responses I've written up on a piece of paper. Not a sausage, Harry. Not one. I mean, I thought I made myself clear. We were clear, weren't we? We were pretty clear. It was contact us on social media. Yeah. Let us know where you are, how you're enjoying the podcast. Just give us a comment. Give us a shout out. Let us know you're there so we can shout out back to you. Nothing. Not a sausage. Absolutely ridiculous. I mean, I don't know why I do this, Harry. I don't know why I put the effort. I honestly don't know why you do it either, Matt. I know. I know. Anyway, Harry, moving on to bigger and better things. Okay. You will know that earlier this week, it was World Oceans Day. I do know that. So, Harry, guess what? What? I've created you a World Oceans Day quiz. <gasps> oh, Our no. listeners can take part if they really want. And what we can do is you get to choose. You're going to, there's some yes and no questions you're going to have to answer, okay? Yes. All right. So, um, just. Was that me. one of them? That wasn't even a question. No, no, no. Okay. Carry on. Give me a second. Just wait, wait, wait. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Harry's World Ocean Day Quiz. Get your pen why, ready. why are we listening to You Can Call Me Al by uh, by Paul Simon? Why is that? Is, is that an ocean theme song? So, Harry. Yeah. Do you like that little bit of fade out there that I did? That was beautiful. Thank you. Volume Very impressive. On the old iPhone. So, Harry Ekman, I'm going to give you four questions and you have to answer whether they are yes or no. Do you understand? Yes. Was that one of them? No. Harry Ekman, as you know, you being an octopus expert, there are 300 species of octopus. Yep. Okay. But however, the question is this. Are octopus asexual? Yes or no? Now, give the listeners at home just a second to think about it because they're going to play along with us. Are octopuses asexual or not? Yes or no? Well, the one I met was. <laughs> but that's more of a story and less of an answer. Yeah. Um, what do you think? I'm going to say that they are. <clears throat> They're not? No. Now, Harry... It lied to out. me. Check this out. Octopuses use one of their eight arms to serve as a penis. <laughs> <laughs> which they I then, only have two, but I do the same thing. Which they then transfer their semen over through. But, and I like this, as the act happens, sometimes some female octopuses strangle the males to death. Oh, so very similar to what happened to me then. Yeah, exactly. Just to think you had to pay for it as well. So, Harry, (laughs) next question. Male lobsters consider urine a love potion. True or false? Um, Whose urine? (laughs) Lobster (laughs) urine. Well, then yes, obviously. (laughs) Ting! Well done, Harry. You got that one right. So, Well, again, based on personal experience, but anyway. (laughs) Male lobsters are jacked, right? They're so aggressive. So what happens is the women, lobsters, they're like, oh, no, I don't want to know. He's really aggressive. I've got to calm him down if we're going to, you know, hello. So they, over a few days, spray their urine over them, which calms them down and then get to it. Anyway, Harry. Yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing a theme of questions here. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Um, you'll know, you know, my um, internet browsing history is, does not look good at the moment. <laughs> Do cuttlefish 
cross-dress in order to seduce a female. Did they did they cross-dress in order to seduce a female cuttlefish? Yes. Well, again, it was a Christmas party. Um, I well, was Christmas dressed. Day. I was dressed as a female cuttlefish, yep. and well, let's just say it was a memorable Christmas. So, yes, the answer to that is also yes. Well done, Harry. Ding! What actually happens, Harry, is female cuttlefish. They are uh, well, they reject seventy percent of all male advances. So, yeah, I was in the thirty percent. Let me tell you. Yep, they change their their colour and they mimic uh, the females. They tuck in their arm. Or their fourth arm. <laughs> and in the words, they, as, as they have the fourth arm tucked, they then hand over sperm packets to the female. <laughs> they hand oh, over sperm packets. Yeah, I've got another one. I've got another one. I'm hoping that the females are expecting those as opposed to thinking it's some other kind of gift. Maybe, yes, like jelly babies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, female. Angler fish have their own anti-Donald Trump defense mechanism. Well, I'm going to say yes, and I'm going to say that there are a lot of females that are not angler fish that would like some advice from them. You are right. So let me just do the noise. Ting! So check this out, okay? This is the greatest anti-male predator technique of any female animal, okay? So a male anglerfish smells out the female. Mm-hmm. It then sinks its teeth into the female's belly. Mm-hmm. Then the male's mouth starts to melt as its jaw's <laughs> jaw bone dissolves. <laughs> and then his tissue begins to merge with her tissue until all is left, and this is actually what it says, until all is left is a sack of sperm. Wow. Nature, ladies and gentlemen. You're welcome. And that's the end of World Oceans Quiz with Harry Ekman. That was fascinating. That was uh, very, very enlightening. Now, as you were doing the research for that, Matt, were there things that you... Well done, by the way. That was most informative. Was there stuff that you knew or was that all Um, new to you? Yeah, that was... I literally did that in two minutes on Google. But... Wow. You should really should delete your search history. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> so, Harry. So, Matt, that was a very nice segue Thank you. into into our guest this week, who has nothing to do with World Ocean Day, but everything to do with food and plant-based diets and mm. veganism. So, who have we got this week, Matt? We have the one and only Dr. Trent Grassian. Now, Trent, it's a bit of a different guest for us this week, isn't it, Harry? He's... um. Trent is a researcher and he's done some amazing work into looking into the impact that organisations have had with trying to get people to reduce the amount of meat they eat and potentially transition to a vegan diet. And it's the largest study that anyone's ever done into this area. And he's basically travelled the world telling everyone about his work. It really, really is innovative. If you're interested in veganism or just curious or just bloody well love our podcasts, well, you're going to love this one. This is going to be a good one, isn't it, Harry? It is. It's really interesting. He's he's such a an engaging person to speak to. It was a really good conversation with him. And it's just a fascinating subject. And he had such good insights into it about behaviors and drivers and why people choose to eat what they do or why they don't. It was just, uh, yeah, it was a really good one. So I think people are really going to enjoy this. 
I think so too. I think so too. So um, I met Trent a few years ago at a conference. Nobody we cares. Presented, we presented alongside each other. Um, Nobody cares, Matt. Nobody cares. Um, so this isn't about you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> so <laughs> change for animals. <laughs> I'm sorry, Matt. I'm joking. Carry on. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, so. This is episode episode ten. Is that right? My God, episode ten already. 10? Yes, episode ten. Episode. Hey, Harry. Yeah. This is episode <laughs> ten of the Animal Chat Podcast with Trent Grassian. Was there a particular moment or was there a particular reason why you yourself turned from being a meat eater to starting a vegan diet? It's interesting because when I think about my transition, it reflects a lot of research. So there is a paper that looked at different types of political identities, including vegetarian and veganism. And it found that people often had a series of encounters. Uh, and I found that in my research as well, most people tend to transition gradually. Um, my partner is always a great person to juxtapose any example I give because we're so different in the way we've approached things. So she got a pamphlet when she was 11 and immediately went vegetarian and has not eaten meat since. Whereas for me, it's always been a bit more of a gradual kind of back and forth thing. So I was off and on vegetarian for almost a decade, which sounds ridiculous when I think about it, but I was because I really hadn't internalized this idea that I shouldn't be eating these foods on some level I knew. But as I said, you know, I loved meat. So even when I was vegetarian, I would end up, oh, I really want to treat myself and get this meat. And, and looking back, I remember often being quite disappointed and thinking that wasn't as good as I thought it would be. But somehow I would build it up in my head again, which probably really relates to our social ideas that these are, the, you know, the most highly esteemed foods. So um, for me, it was I think a lack of information. So it's interesting when people say we shouldn't throw things in people's faces. But at the same time, I wish someone had talked to me about this stuff because no one ever did. And I even had vegan friends and a lot of vegetarian friends at times when I was eating meat. And no one ever told me why, <laughs> why they were doing it. So the things that really, really impacted me were encounters with animals, which was something a lot of people in my research spoke about. So my partner and I had not really had many opportunities to travel. And we decided we just wanted to, at some point, decided we wanted to make it a big trip. So we kind of waited a while and eventually did this big trip where we went to Australia and New Zealand. And the way we did it was we were woofing, uh, which is a way to travel essentially where you get free room and board in exchange for work. But because we knew we liked animals, we thought we will do it at animal sanctuaries. And it was a really interesting experience because we stayed at a few different places. And the first one was a kangaroo animal sanctuary. She now has a kangaroo tattoo. So you can you can imagine this was very impactful. But at this, <laughs> this uh, sanctuary, they had other animals. They had sheep, etc. And they ate meat and they were not very nice about us being vegetarian, if I'm honest. They really thought it was horrible, especially me. The, they were really horrified that I, as a man, was a vegetarian. And they actually slaughtered some sheep while we were there. And it was very clear they were doing it to upset us. 
it was like a mixture of being amazed by these kangaroos and and horrified uh, at the same time. And after that, we went to, it wasn't a sanctuary, it was an alpaca farm. And at the time we thought, oh, well, they're just going to take their wool. This is fine. But being there, we really encountered how horrifying the wool industry is on this, even on this small farm, we could see how horrible it was and that they actually, uh, at a certain age, they would end up killing the alpacas for meat because their wool was no longer useful. And, you know, the way that they sheared them, having to watch that and just so many things about it. And then the third place we went was a vegan sanctuary that I cannot rave about enough in New Zealand called the Animal Sanctuary, easy to remember. And it was incredible. And we were there. And while we were there, we ate vegan. And we didn't have anything thrown in our face, but just being around the animals, being around hens and just learning about the horrors of the egg industry. And it's interesting because like for me, really impactful things are just hanging out with a couple of pigs who I really grew to love. Even though, you know, the difference between vegetarian and vegan has nothing to do with eating pigs, just being around animals and being able to to see animals in a context that we often don't and seeing them as individuals, hearing about the horrors of how they're treated, some of which we knew on some level, but but actually seeing the animals whose lives this was impacting was, was so impactful. And I think right before we left, we kind of looked at each other and just said, yeah, we're definitely going to stay vegan after this, which was amazing. And we ended up moving to the UK after that. And that's where we got involved with you know, some other folks through a local group who are interested in animals. And we were already committed to going vegan. But as I said, we were kind of at the 98% stage, I think, because we were by ourselves, there weren't other people kind of normalizing this for us. And, and we just moved to this kind of small town in the UK, where there just seemed to be nothing vegan. And we certainly could have done it 100% straight away. But I think on some level, we felt like we were missing out. So by doing it with other people, then we were kind of able to not after more than a couple months really reach the point where it was, you know, this is what we're doing. And and why would we why would we cheat on that? And I always say, like, you know, I was a terrible vegetarian for many years, but I find being vegan so much easier because for me, it's about having an ethically consistent lifestyle that makes sense to me. So now I have no problem. You know, I've been in many situations, not in the past few years, because <laughs> things just hmm. better, where there wasn't food for me. And I had, you know, I think we, we once, uh, my partner's parents were visiting and we went to Portugal and we went to a restaurant they wanted to go to. And I remember we couldn't eat a single thing on the menu. And I was so hungry, been walking around all day and I was just in such a bad mood sitting there. I think we, we were able to get like a fruit salad. <laughs> That it didn't occur to me, you know, whereas when I'd been vegetarian, if that had happened, I think I would have perhaps eaten meat, but the, but now it just wouldn't have occurred to me. And I was like, well, as soon as we finish, I'm just going to go get something somewhere because there's always something you can eat, but just not in that restaurant that couldn't seem to figure out that they, I'm sure, could have made us something. Um, it was kind of a very slow and gradual transition. But then, yeah, I guess about six years ago, almost exactly, is when we really committed to a vegan lifestyle. And I think since I've done that, it's hard for me to imagine not ever being vegan. And I definitely, that's not something that would be in my future. (laughs) (laughs) I remember I was at the Brook with yourself at a Human Behaviour Change for Animals workshop. And I remember your presentation really well because it seems so, I know it sounds silly, but so original to be thinking of behaviour change and veganism. And the fact that you were looking into into doing that, what was it that, 
first of all, I suppose, made you start to decide to look, to make that connection and to go down that route of veganism and looking into how you can change human behavior? Thank you. That's, that's very nice. And it, it's always good to hear if people are interested in my research I've done. Um, I guess for me, it was essentially that I've always been really passionate about human rights, social justice. And when I essentially went vegan and became really passionate about animal rights as a part of that and helping animals, I really was interested in how I could make the most impact. And at the time I was doing a master's and it's actually funny, the documentary that actually inspired me to do a PhD, it's funny because now it's one I struggle to ever recommend, but it's Cowspiracy. It's like very inspiring, but a lot of the facts in it are not great. (laughs) Um, But it really inspired me to look into this huge gap in knowledge that we have. And so actually my PhD was in social policy. And I originally thought I was going to look more at the policy side of things. And I went to Brussels. I met with ministers. I did all this stuff. But I realized that if we're thinking about how to change people and how to change diets, unfortunately, I think, I mean, things have changed in the past five years. But at that time, I really thought there's no chance that we're going to get policy to change in this way. So first, we really need to figure out how we can get more people to change so that we can kind of create this momentum, reach, you know, that tipping point where there's enough people behind this that it's something that they are listening to, Uh, which is definitely, you know, we, we seem to be moving in that direction, which is exciting. So that got me really interested in that. And I went to actually the Human Behavior Change for Animals Conference in the UK, And that's when Joe from HBCA did a presentation using the behavior change wheel. And it was just at the right time when I was trying to figure out what theoretical basis am I going to use? How am I going to try to look at this? And it was just everything I was looking for because it talks about policy and it talks about, you know, types of behavior. It's kind of like everything just came together in the perfect timing. And I was able to to make that work in my research, which was really exciting. <laughs> yeah, it's a fabulous bit of research. I mean, it, it's quite um, what I find amazing about it. And maybe just for people that don't know, what what exactly was the research that you undertook? Because it was it was something that hadn't been done before. Nobody had looked at it in the way that you did. Yeah, well, yeah, that's exactly right. So basically, I was trying to figure out what do we need to know and how are we changing people? So It was kind of a very stepped process and a lot of things fell into place. So the first step was really trying to understand how people are becoming aware of all of these reasons to become vegan. And it was through a friend of mine. She was at Animal Equality at the time and they were running a campaign called iAnimal, which was like a virtual reality film. They had different ones about different issues related to animals. And that was the first time that had been done. And that I found really interesting and inspiring. And she had done a PhD and so she was really interested in research. And I just thought, this is this is perfect. What better way is there than to work directly with nonprofits? So I was reaching out to different nonprofits, and I was able to work with several different nonprofits in the UK, which was fantastic, such as, you know, Friends of the Earth, Animal Aid, Animal Quality, Viva, um, a couple others. And basically, the goal was to look at their participants and follow them over a year and see what they were eating, or at least what they were reporting they were eating, how that changed, what types of goals they had about changing their diets, their motives and their barriers. And I did this through a survey that I gave out at different points and doing focus groups. Um, And that really helped me, you know, kind of create this picture of what might be going on for these people. And since it was the first time this type of research had been done, I wasn't really trying to figure out uh, in the way that some people use these more complex statistical models and try to say, this is how things are. I was just trying to get a picture and see what types of groups might be out there. What 
different ways of changing their diets, what might be motivating them, um, and what are the things that might be making it difficult. It was it was fantastic the way it all worked out. And I did a lot of work directly with the nonprofit. So I interviewed their staff members and tried to incorporate some of their needs as well, which I think really ended up helping the project because I think they definitely had some great ideas about what was important. So that was something I started in 2015. Is that right? Or is it? Yes, 2015. And I wrapped it up <laughs> in 2000. <laughs> Feels like it. So it sounds so long ago. Uh, in 2018, I guess, is when I was able to submit my final PhD. And then, yeah, there have been a lot of things I've done since then with presenting the research and kind of sharing it and, and trying to make it accessible for different folks. It's such an interesting piece of research. I mean, obviously, working with those organizations, especially with animal welfare organizations, animal rights organizations, there's an expectation of how you present the information and how you get people on board to support or change their lifestyle, change their practices, change their eating habits. And yet that was based on, I'm guessing, the opinion of the people that worked in those organizations rather than what you did was to find out what the people that they were speaking to actually felt about it, what motivated them, how they made their decisions. Yeah. I mean, there's a great quote from Mitchie, the the author of The Behavior Change Real, and she says something like that most interventions are based on what seemed like a good idea at the time rather than, you know, really looking at research. And, and a lot of organizations are just very small. They often don't have researchers, people who necessarily have that kind of background. And a lot of times, I think the issue is when we think about changing people's behavior, we think about what worked for us. And also the other issues we kind of, it can be hard for people, I think, to go back in time almost. I think it's hard to remember the things that made it hard for us to change our habits. So a lot of times we end up kind of doing things because, well, this just makes sense. If I tell people this, this will definitely you know, this will impact them. But perhaps that's information that, you know, if you had gotten 10 years ago would have had no impact on you. And you don't remember that. (laughs) Um, So there are these kind of issues. Um, And it's great. I think that a lot of organizations are getting more interested in behavior change, you know, through things like HBCA. And then I know uh, there's another fantastic organization called Animal Think Tank that really engages with research as well. So I think it's great that this is kind of becoming more popular I guess I'd say, um, and people are learning more about it. But yeah, like you said, I think it's so important for organizations to really try to understand, starting with, you know, what is your actual theory of change? So how do you think things are actually going to change? What's your goal? How do you actually make that happen? So, you know, your theory of change could be that people genuinely want to be good and help animals. So if we just give them the information, they will eventually become vegan. Uh, It could be that it's just about availability. And if we can just get more vegan options out there, that's the only thing really changing what people are doing. You know, so there's different ways we can look at it that way. Um, And I think if organizations can start with kind of that framework of thinking, what do you think is actually the way things are going to change? And then actually think strategically about where you fit into the broader systems and what you can actually change. So these leverage points you can reach into. But a big part of that, of course, is understanding how people do what they do and what motivates them and what makes things difficult. So it kind of, it all plays a role, I guess. Yeah, I think that's really, really interesting you say that. And what I love about your your research is how you really separate into 
what are the most sort of impactful motivations to get people to make that change, but also how they can actually maintain it and the sort of the, the reasons why sometimes people don't maintain it. But but what I before I come into that, what I think is really interesting what you just said as well is something I thought for a long time. I think that people in animal welfare, they often fall into the trap of thinking just because something maybe triggered them or in particular with education, because a lot of people sometimes think that just because something made you research and change your behavior by maybe a picture of an animal suffering, that that's going to be the same for other people in society when actually they need different sorts of interventions to get them to change. With your with your work, Trent, what were the most important motivations, the most present motivations that made people switch from maybe a meat diet or a sort of part meat diet to going vegan or trying veganism? Yeah, so I looked at uh, a few different motives. Obviously, I couldn't look at every single potential one. Um, Of course, I looked at animal welfare, the environment health. I also included food safety. So nowadays, this is becoming more and more prevalent, you know, with things like coronavirus right now that, you know, came from animal agriculture, as these things generally do. Financial motives is another one and religious motives. And I also had another category. So no one would be surprised that health, animal welfare and the environment were the most popular. The things I think were quite interesting that I found was that um, health was significantly less popular than the other two, which is interesting because when we look at most research, it kind of puts health and animal um, welfare as the number one and two. And generally, it seems like animal motives are more popular, but that health isn't always close behind. So I think that was interesting and suggests that these campaigns aren't necessarily reaching those who are more health motivated, uh, which also lines up with their messaging not being as focused on that. So those were the most popular motives. Um, Most people, they express multiple things as being motives. So I think almost half of people included health, animal welfare, and the environment. Very few just said one thing. But yeah, there were some differences in who was motivated by what. So definitely people who were vegetarian or vegan or interested in going in that direction were more likely to be motivated by animal welfare and the environment. Whereas those who were continuing to eat meat were more likely to be motivated by health. So what really came out so strongly was the impact of the animal motives. In every area, this was the most impactful. So it was most strongly linked to people meeting their reduction goals and actually the amount that people reduced over that year. Um, The other thing that was interesting was pretty much every other motive was linked to eating more fish. So for instance, if you're more motivated by the environment or health, you were more likely to want to eat more fish over time and you were more likely to report doing so. Whereas those motivated by animals uh, were more likely to eat less fish, which was great. (laughs) And, you know, we know from uh, an impact perspective, I mean, there's nothing more important than getting people to eat less fish, arguably, because it's just so many more animals. And when we think about the oceans and everything else going on, it's pretty horrifying. So I think that's a really, really key thing that I found. Um, Animal motives were also more popular for women and for those over 34, which was interesting. But yeah, so in general, I found the animal motives to be really, really powerful. And one thing that came out of the focus groups was something I refer to as the vegan mind shift, which is something a lot of, I think, ethical vegans will know what I'm talking about. So it's kind of this idea that I can't eat those foods. They're not food to me anymore. Um, You know, so for instance, for me, I'm someone I always think I'm kind of in some ways lucky that I was a big, big meat eater. And I loved meat. Like I still many years later, meat still looks good to me. It still smells good, even though somewhere, you know, on a conscious level, I recognize all the horrible things around it. 
there's nothing that would make me eat it, right? So it's this kind of shift in perspective that can happen. And what I really found was that, you know, this kind of mind shift isn't really possible in the same way with other motives. And there's a few key reasons for that. So one is, if you're saying that this is ethically problematic food, you're not going to eat it. Whereas if you're saying, well, it's not good for the environment, that doesn't mean you can never eat it. So for instance, if we think about like using plastic or driving less or eating less meat, you know, these are kind of the messages of environmentalism. It's not about, you know, never doing something generally, because you might think, well, I'm reducing my impact significantly. Um, Similarly for health, the messages around health are often around eating a quote unquote balanced diet or all these things. It's not generally that you should never eat something. So even people who are very healthy might sometimes eat sweets or eat something unhealthy. So this is, I think, one of the things we need to think about with animal motives, because people are definitely going to be motivated by different things initially. But I think as much as possible, if we can tie in the animal message, I think that's what's more likely to keep people with whatever changes they make and help, you know, increase those changes. One other thing I'll mention quickly is the financial motives. I've seen this more and more getting talked about in terms of like, you know, eat less meat, you'll save money. But I I always say be very careful because I found an inverse relationship. So meaning that if you were more motivated to save money, you were unlikely to meet your goals. Those who are less motivated were more likely to meet their goals. So this is a bit tricky. That's really interesting. Do you think that, um, so you're talking about the difference between people turning vegan or vegetarian and remaining vegan and vegetarian. And obviously that's a really important difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so one of the things, those of us that work in the behavior change field, there's a situation where you self-justify retroactively. You change your behavior and then you use arguments that maybe you knew previously to justify your more permanent decision. You know, it's kind of like when people quit smoking, it's not like they didn't know it was bad for them Mm -hmm. before they quit smoking. It's just because maybe their social environment changed or there was a a price hike or something like that. But then when you ask them afterwards, they'll say, oh, well, it was bad for me. But that wasn't a moment of realization. They didn't just suddenly puff a cigarette and look at the horrible lung on the side of the cigarette pack and go, why did nobody tell me? And so I'm I'm guessing with with animals Mm -hmm. uh, compared to environment, and health that there needs to be a combination of all of those things because if you want people to uh, I guess what I'm saying is if you want people to stay on the path and remain vegan and adhere to a plant-based diet then you need to give them enough ammunition if you like to be able to justify their own behavior so that there's less opt-outs like you were saying with the environment it's kind of like yeah i can cut down a bit with health well well, you know one burger's not but an animal it's got to be there and i guess it's got to be all of those things Mm. for a lot of people the animal is important, but if there isn't more to it than that, then they might find a justification. Well, Christmas is only once a year, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And that comes into the the barriers, which is the other side, side of the research, I suppose. <laughs> but I think, I mean, there's so much research, I think, that this suggests we need. And I would love to see research that focused on those who'd already transitioned and, you know, followed them over a period of time and see, you know, what helps them stay vegan, vegetarian, etc., or helps them reduce more or start completely cutting out foods. But definitely, I mean, I think this was one of the things that was interesting. So I'm just thinking in terms of barriers and the types of things that made it difficult for people over time. And there were there were several things that were kind of these that could be big enough issues that it would stop people who were very motivated. And it, and it definitely varies, I think, by individual. So 
there were definitely, you know, in the focus groups, which is a much smaller sample, but there were definitely people who it didn't really matter what the barriers were, the way they described it, they would have stayed with it no matter what. And I think one thing is just kind of the time factor. So there's kind of this sharp learning curve in the beginning and this issue around this huge amount of knowledge you need to gain. And at that time, like you're saying, you might be motivated by one thing, but not know as much about the others. And I always talk about these like awkward vegan questions that we get asked that are just really annoying and make it so that everyone needs to be kind of feel like they need to be a vegan encyclopedia. Because when you're just trying to eat lunch and someone's asking you about backyard hens or they're asking you about protein or something, you know, you'd never thought of if you are in the early stages and you're maybe struggling in some way, these can be really difficult. And in terms of, especially for vegans, this was one of the things I really found that the social barriers seem to be quite significant, especially in the beginning and feeling that people aren't supporting you. So someone was saying, you know, you're constantly having to fight your battles and you're having to defend your what you're eating. That was exhausting. Um, and it was making her question if she wanted to do it. But in the end, you know, she was saying how there was really nothing that could make her not do it. But other people um, that may be more of an issue. And I think one big thing that we don't think about a lot, especially in these campaigns and, and when we're promoting behavior change and we're thinking on an individual level is the social context which is so important. And that's why in my research, I pulled in a lot of theories from social consumption, which is really interesting field. And that looks at, you know, what's what's the social role of food? So, so food isn't just, you know, you don't just eat food because you're eating it, you eat it, you're consuming really culture, you're consuming all these other social norms. So a lot of people described kind of like you were saying, like, these kind of exceptions that they might have had in the beginning. So a lot of these people who described being nearly vegan or having a longer transition where there was some exception that was something often social. So it was something like, oh, but my mom makes this special meal or, oh, but for people's birthdays or things like that where you don't want to be perceived as awkward mm -hmm. or for whatever reason you want to feel like you're not sacrificing something that's really important to you. So one person talked about Maltesers, which I've, I've never tried. So I, I, I had no, I have no emotional connection to them. Um, but for her, whenever she gets sick, she really wants Maltesers because it's something her mom gave her. And I was saying, oh, I think there's a vegan version. And she was like, it's not the same thing. It's that specific thing. There's this association. So with foods, we have these strong associations in different ways. And that can be really hard to overcome and to, and to create new associations with foods that you may be less familiar with. You talking about the barriers that exist and the and the social aspects and all of the things that a person thinks about consciously or subconsciously when they're making these decisions is kind of like one stacked on top of the other on top of the other. And recognizing that and being able to unpick that is so important when you're trying to find a way to motivate people so that they can do the thing that at some level they actually want to do. Yeah, no, de definitely. And this is actually one of the things that I, I've written about uh, in my blog and, and spoken about is that I think this idea when we tell people it's really easy to go vegan, it's really easy to do that. I think that's a mistake. Because for me, I find it really easy because I've been doing it. It's normal to me. But I think in the beginning, it isn't necessarily easy. And that's okay. And I think if we embrace that, it's much better rather than people being like, oh, my God, I thought this was gonna be easy. And I'm really surprised. But if we help people with that process, I think that makes such a difference because exactly like these different barriers, these different elements can really feel like they're piling up if 
you're like, you know, you're rushing for, for lunch and you can't find something vegan, which nowadays seems almost impossible in the UK because there is just so much vegan stuff everywhere. But if you're not familiar with it and you're not looking for it, you know, you're not used to looking for vegan food and suddenly you're looking for your lunch. You, you have only a short time and you can't figure out what to eat. And then you finally find something, but it's not very good. And then people are making fun of your lunch or making jokes about it. And then it doesn't taste good as well. And oh my God, it was it was so expensive. How ridiculous. You know, so these things can really start piling up. So this is the whole way when I talk about barriers, I talk about barrier perception because I know people tell me all these things are barriers for them. And I've reached the point where it's hard to remember what they're talking about, especially in terms of availability, because every year as another veganuary happens, the amount of vegan stuff in the UK just seems to exponentially grow. And it's it's, it's incredible, it, isn't it? I just can't. Yeah. yeah uh, yeah. So it's amazing that now I can feel like I can go anywhere and there will be vegan food. They will know what veganism is, which... I mean, six years ago, I, I wouldn't go anywhere because I assume there's no way they'll know. Um, I'll just have to make my own food all the time or buy Linda McCartney sausages, which I have grown on me. But when I moved here, I was like, oh, my gosh, UK, how, do you not have anything else? Um, but yeah, so these these barriers can really pile up. So some of the, so the social one I mentioned, I think is such a key one and so ignored. And I think. This is one of the main things I, I really raised with with campaigns in terms of how can you support this and how can you support this community? Because I think when we're doing something together, it makes such a big difference. And just personally, I know that because I transitioned with my partner and it made it so much easier for us. And when we had recently gone vegan and we were still kind of in that stage, we weren't 100 percent. We were at like, I'd say, 99 percent. But we had those those little exceptions, right, because we didn't want to feel like we were missing out on something. We were doing our master's in Exeter, and we got involved in a very new animal welfare group. So a lot of people that we are still friends with today, one of them is actually my, my housemate, who were interested in animals, but many of them weren't vegetarian, weren't meat reducers, but they, they loved animals. And we ended up doing a month-long vegan campaign through the Animal Aid Vegan Pledge. And it was incredible because almost everyone is still vegan five years later. I mean, it's it's wild. And I think it's because it was a huge group of people doing it together. I think there were about 20 of us and we'd have regular dinner parties. We were all sharing recipes. And I think when you're doing it with other people, it helps build that norm around it. This is normal. And this isn't as hard as I thought because I'm getting all these resources. It's exciting because we're sharing things together. So I think any way we can help people do things in community, that's going to automatically increase success. But moving beyond the social, there are plenty of other barriers <laughs> we can look at. <laughs> so the other barriers include things like using the behavior change wheel terms. One of them is called automatic motivation. So we don't really think of these motives. So it's not things like animals. It's things like your identity. So you may not think of yourself as a meat eater on a conscious level, but subconsciously, you may have these stigmas or ideas around vegetarians or vegans, and you know you're not that. So the idea of embracing a new identity can feel difficult for people. And I definitely came across, you know, many different stigmas. I think vegetarian stigmas are reducing a lot, especially for women, but vegan stigmas are still quite present. So there's so many different ones we all know about, you know, thinking that vegans are really fussy or awkward, thinking we're all hippies, we're too extreme. There's a lot of associations with femininity. So all these types of things. So these can play a role in how you think of yourself on a subconscious level. Other things that are just kind of habituated to what you do are things like taste. So, you know, there's so much research about taste and how what we think tastes good, it has a lot to do with what we were raised eating as a kid. So in the UK, I know when I moved here, 
I kept coming across this idea of meat and two veg or a Sunday roast, you know, and, and uh, my friends still laugh about when the first Sunday roast I went to and I said, oh, I'll, I'll make this nice tofu and I'll bring it. And they all apparently were too polite to say anything, but they were all messaging <laughs> about how hilarious it was that I was showing up with some tofu to a Sunday roast. Um, but to me, that seemed perfectly, <laughs> perfectly reasonable. You know, so things like taste, people might still have cravings for particular foods that can, I've spoken to people who've said they have cravings or food for a very long time. But whereas others may not have that at all, there's another group of people who who may have always found meat disgusting and never wanted to eat it, you know, the blood of it, all these different things. So to give it up for them is much easier. Whereas for other people, I like myself, as I said, I always thought meat was the best food and I thought vegetarian food was disgusting. And as a vegetarian, I always thought, this is terrible. I wish I ate meat. Whereas now as a vegan... I don't feel that way at all because, you know, I'm trying so many different more types of foods and I find it much more exciting and I can't imagine feeling like I'm missing out on something. But a lot of people do feel this kind of sacrifice or some people describe kind of a willingness to make sacrifices. It doesn't even matter to them. So, you know, some people were talking about being somewhere, well, there's nothing vegan, so therefore I'm going to eat something vegetarian. Whereas other people said, well, there's always fruit or, oh, well, I could just get toast or, uh, uh, you know, and, and it wouldn't occur to them because I'm in their head, well, I'm doing this 100%. I can eat something else. So all these different things play a role. And one thing I think would be really interesting to look into is the use of different types of substitutes, because I think this is very loosely, you know, it's based on my research, but I think I, I don't have enough to, to solidly say this, but what I sensed was that substitutes could help people in the transition by feeling like you can keep your old habits. But I think when you have these kind of emotional attachments to food, that can be really tricky. And I think also when you're you're using substitutes, it doesn't help you get this kind of, what was actually became the title of my PhD, the, uh, this new way of eating, uh, which is the idea that you're not just eating this kind of staple meat and two veg. And then when you go vegetarian or vegan, you have to cut the meat out and use some kind of lesser substitute that's inherently in your mind going to be less delicious. Uh, you know, and the whole idea of a substitute implies that it's less good. Hmm. So instead, it's about expanding your palate and trying a million different things. So for instance, I used to hate beans. Uh, I couldn't stand beans, lentils, you know, if they were in a meal, I was like, why are these here? Whereas now I think they're great. And there's so many different kinds, there's so much you can do with them. So I think it's about kind of embracing the this new way of eating, the fact that your taste buds will change, as surprising as that is to many people, and that you can try new foods. So that really ties into the next component, which is psychological capabilities. So this is things like knowledge and skills. So knowing what vegan food is, vegetarian food is, knowing how to cook it. You know, and research suggests that vegetarian vegan food does require more skills, which makes sense because kind of meat-based meals, I mean, I've, even when I ate meat, I never really cooked it. But, you know, I know you can just throw it on a grill, you can throw it on a pan, whereas a vegetarian vegan meal generally is more involved. But all these things play a role. Um, another component of, of knowledge is health misinformation. So like I said, you know, I think in the early days, you can get all this kind of bombardment of things and get really panicked. And I think health is definitely something that even if someone's not motivated by health, it's really important to give them the information to feel confident that they're healthy. So I know someone who who's in the process of transitioning to veganism right now, and I was trying to help her because she was really, I think, starting to get overwhelmed about nutrition and thinking she needed to plan out, where am I going to get magnesium? Where am I going to get this and that? And I was like, you know, you don't need to think about it on that level and just trying to help combat some of that. 
And the final area is physical opportunities. So this is just essentially two main components of this are availability, which, as I've said, is becoming less and less of a barrier every day. Um, and the other area is cost. So this, interestingly, was on average the largest reported barrier, the idea that vegetarian or vegan food costs more. And I think this probably relates a lot to seeing these kind of vegan labeled meats and cheeses. Um, so these substitutes and seeing that they're more expensive, perhaps, than the meat or the dairy-based cheese or the you know animal-based meat product. Um, so feeling that this diet is more expensive, even though you know research wouldn't support that. And, and uh, I think there's really no reason to think these diets are more expensive. And of course, subsidies and all these things that play a role in supporting animal agriculture to such a large extent. So these are kind of the, the barriers I looked at using the behavior change reel. And I think what's important, of course, is when looking at these, you can't really think about them in isolation. So if you've read my report and you think, okay, financial was the biggest barrier, uh, we just need to make things cheaper. That's great, but all of these things really are going to play a role together and they're going to link up because, you know, like I've said, if you make these substitutes cheaper, on one level, that's fantastic, but people then might start feeling like, well, a vegan diet isn't very healthy because I'm eating all these processed food. Or they might think, well, it doesn't taste very good because I'm eating these foods that are supposed to mimic something else and it's not ever going to be exactly the same. Although nowadays things are getting so close, it's kind of wild as well. <laughs> um, so I think we have to think kind of holistically about how these things link up and link up with motives and link up with how people actually change their diets. So yes, so that is the barrier component of my research. <laughs> There's so much there. And, and it's so interesting. And what I think is incredible and what you're saying there is, is like how interconnected all of those things are. You know, you can focus any, on any one of those barriers and find a way of overcoming it, for example. But then the fact that it's linked to so many other things. And so I, one of the things I wanted to ask you, you touched on it there before. And, and obviously, especially in the UK, the growth of veganuary, the availability of so many plant-based mm -hmm. foods. I mean, it's the largest growth sector in food at the moment. And the variety of things, not just in supermarkets, but in restaurants and fast food chains, everybody's jumping on the bandwagon. So there's clearly money to be made and there's clearly a demand. And I understand what you're saying about a vegan burger is not necessarily a healthy option. It's not a, a change in lifestyle. But that availability issue, that convenience issue, that social acceptability issue, you know, if everybody else is going into Burger King, then now I can and I can have a burger that's exactly the same as everybody else's. That's got to make a, a huge impact. And obviously, that's people are still maybe going to want to adapt their lifestyle and, and open up their palate, like you were saying. But there's there's got to be a lot of positives with this huge area of growth now, right? Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, I definitely wouldn't want to imply otherwise. I think for me, I love all these new options. I mean, I, I love that now I go to the grocery store and before, if there was something new that was vegan, 10 people had already told me about it and I knew what store it was in and I was going to find it straight away <laughs> and it was sold out. Um, but now I go to this grocery store and there's 20 things I haven't tried and I don't even feel any pressure to try them because I know there'll be new things soon. So that just makes it, you know, for me, who's someone who's been vegan a long time, it just makes it feel that much more easy, even though I already thought it was easy. I mean, so that's fantastic. And I do think it makes such a difference that now if at work we have an event or we're going somewhere, I don't have to worry that 
I'm, oh gosh, am I going to be able to eat anything where we're going? Do I have to eat before I go? (laughs) Um, You know, things like that. So I think that makes it so much easier. And it's also, I've definitely seen, so for instance, where where I work, uh, I'm one of three, uh, soon to be four, I think, vegans out of about 45 people. So not a huge percentage. And probably, you know, there's a handful of vegetarians along with that. I think for them, seeing how easy it is me and me being able to bring in different things or eat things in front of them they're like oh that's vegan and they're you know kind of surprised so things like that I think have made it much easier and made other people see oh this actually isn't as bad as I thought oh there's vegan things everywhere and I think once it's in your head you start noticing things more as well like you said so you're out to eat and you see oh wow you know there's all these posters everywhere for KFC having vegan food, for this other place having vegan food. There's all these vegan things on the menu. Maybe I'll try this vegan thing. So even just from a reduction standpoint, you know, anytime anyone eats a vegan meal or a vegetarian meal when they would have eaten a meat-based meal, that's a positive. Obviously, we want more than that, but it starts people trying different types of foods. You know, and there's so many vegetarian and vegan restaurants. I know some vegan chefs have spoken about how they want vegan food to be seen as a cuisine. So you know, you could say I'm going to eat Caribbean food or I'm going to go eat vegan food, which I think people do. And it surprises me how many meat eaters, especially in London now, go to a vegan restaurant um, because they heard it's nice. So so things like this are, are fantastic and just making it easier. And I think that's definitely a part of the solution. Picking up on the point that you made before was the fact that now there's that low bar of it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. It's something that always amuses me when uh, when I encourage people to try some vegetarian food. And I, I'm aiming a little higher than that, that it's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. But I think that <laughs> that level now is so much better because I think the investment that's being made in these vegetarian options now, um, when they started importing Beyond Burger into the UK, and I encouraged my family to try it. And it was so fascinating for me to watch the reaction of my my family members. My niece was kind of like, eh, it's okay, but it's not a burger. My sister, who... Uh, so I've, like you, Trent, I always love the taste of meat, but I actively chose not to eat it. But it doesn't mean that I can't walk past a barbecue and still remember enjoying that. And so having these meat options that bring that back to me are great. My sister, on the other hand, because she's chosen not to eat meat, she's almost repulsed at the idea of it. And so when she ate something that wasn't meat, but tasted like meat, she really didn't know what to do with that. And so it's really interesting the reaction that people have to this kind of thing. Oh, yeah, that's so true. I I find it so interesting. So I'll find people who are meat eaters who can't believe and they say, oh my gosh, I I would actually eat this. This actually tastes good. Uh, And they can't believe it's vegan. So I don't bake ever, but a friend of mine had a birthday at work and I baked a vegan cake. I was very nervous about it. (laughs) It went okay. And people said, somebody said, oh, you know, this isn't vegan though. And I said, oh yes it is. And then she started going, no, no, it's not. No, no, no. And they were all like, oh no, no, no. And I was like, yes, it is. And, and so that was, on one hand, it it's shows how ingrained this idea is that vegan food isn't going to be as good. But also it's a positive in that in the end, they got to realize, oh, it was just as good and it was vegan. So I find this kind of thing similarly with especially these meat substitutes. So I think Beyond Meat Burgers are fantastic. There's also, you know, like this chicken, which is a hard one to say because it sounds like you're not saying the name, um, but the name is this. Uh, So things like that that are really good. There's now the Moving Mountain that I think is in Sainsbury's now. So there's all these amazing substitutes, but I know people who are meat eaters who will eat it and immediately say, oh, no, 
it's not the same, the texture. Obviously, if you did an experiment, I wonder if they would realize. And they, they do things like that I always see on TV where they don't realize. But so there are people like that who are just always going to try to say it's not quite the same. And, and then, of course, yes, like you said, I know people who don't understand the idea of vegans or vegetarians wanting meat substitutes or thinking, well, what's wrong with you? You said you don't want meat. Uh, so how dare you eat this, even though, like you said, it has nothing to do with that. You know, I, I can enjoy it. Or who people who are vegetarian or vegan or even meat eaters who think meat doesn't taste good or don't enjoy it. So would never want these substitutes. So I think the first time I tried Beyond Meat has a chicken that is not in the UK yet, but I was very surprised it had almost like a blood flavor, which sounds gross, I know. Um, (laughs) And I tried it with my partner who was not someone who really liked the taste of meat and she could not eat it. And I was like, I actually think it tastes nice. <laughs> so just things like that uh, I find really interesting and I and it shows you know how different we are and this is one of the other things that I always say is you know when we think about these campaigns so like we were talking about before with um this idea of what worked for me this kind of generic idea of this is what I think will work so this is what I will do when actually we're all really different so why are we not creating more tailored campaigns this is something I always wonder about. And I always say, you know, it's not even that hard. So even if you're sending email messages, you could ask a few questions up front. So you could ask something about how much people like to cook. This is a huge thing that I found in, in, in my research in terms of differences between people. So I like cooking. My partner hates cooking. So if you sent her all these complicated recipes, uh, when she was transitioning, she would have been like, I'm never going to be able to do this. Whereas, you know, if you sent me a banana blossom vegan fish recipe, I would be thrilled and I would probably go make it. So we need to know if people are willing to cook, if people like trying new foods, how they feel about substitutes, culture, so culturally appropriate foods. Um, a lot of times we assume this kind of what, what we see is like the stereotypical British meals are the meals that you're going to want, but that may not be your background. That may not be what your family eats. So having a better sense of people and then creating these tailored campaigns, I think, is a huge way that we could reach more people and address, you know, this huge diversity in the way we eat, our backgrounds, etc. That's really, really interesting. I mean, how do you feel talking about how we need almost a diverse approach? Is it frustrating sometimes to find that the media will put on vegan activists who, and I'm not whether you agree with their methods or not, or or the way they're interviewed or some of the things they're saying, do you find it frustrating or encouraging or helpful when the media tend to put on people with very extreme views that are, when I say extreme, I mean using quite emotive language, and they tend to have a, a vegan activist next to somebody who is a quite extreme sort of meat advocate and you end up getting in this back and forth argument did your research at all or you personally do you think is that helpful to the movement or do you think it would be helpful if with the media there was a bit more of a a more of an intelligent debate such as the one that you're having here with us that's a really good question i think that's something that i've been very interested in and had very different views over the past six years since I've been vegan. So if you'd asked me six years ago, I would have said one thing, four years ago, something else, two years ago, something else. So today, I perhaps have a different view than I did then. <laughs> and this has a lot to do with the things I've been reading, the conversations I've had. So one of my very good friends is a part of Animal Think Tank. Her name's Layla Kassam. She does a million different things. You may have come across her. And she is is very interested in this idea of movement building. She is someone who's more well-read than anyone I've ever met in my life. 
if you mention a book to her, she'll probably read it in a week. <laughs> um, but I've had a lot of interesting conversations with her about all the research behind how we build mass movements, how we actually make change. Um, and I've read a lot of books recently on systems thinking, which I think is yeah. really interesting. And I think if we combine this kind of systems thinking approach with behavior change, we can be really powerful in what we're doing because it's about looking at the broader picture. So to briefly explain uh, a way you could think about it, systems thinking is this story that many of you may have heard about, you know, if five different people are touching parts of an elephant but can't see what they're doing. One will think they're touching a spear. One will think they're touching perhaps a mop. If they're touching the tail. Uh, one will think they might be touching a nice um, sofa, you know, whatever it is. But if we don't all link up, we don't see the full picture. So that's part of it. Uh, it's a long-winded way of answering your question. But, but my thinking behind this is that you know, sometimes we have to look at outside of the animal movement in terms of how society has changed. And sometimes these things that to us seem, at times I've definitely thought were quite extreme or quite turning people off. Uh, and so, and you know, there are certain things definitely that I see that I think, oh, that was not great. I do worry about that. Mm. <laughs> um, but I think in terms of actually getting more people involved um, and making social change, sometimes we kind of have to do things that are quite uncomfortable and different types of direct action, for instance, have been involved in pretty much every successful social movement. It's a bit tricky because it is very different than the animal movement in terms of we are not having, you know, pigs and cows as a part of our movement helping us uh, and telling us what they need. So we have to kind of speak for others, which is very difficult. But I think there is, you know, the media side of things, they do often pull in these people who they think are going to turn people off and make us look bad. Uh, and sometimes they say things that are not my favorite, <laughs> to put it, put it mildly. But I do think it is tricky, because I think one interesting uh, I'm trying to remember what book this was this was from, but it was something I was reading recently that I, that really struck me in terms of when we're thinking about changing the world, and this has to do a lot with back to what I was talking about theory of change, we really are trapped within the paradigms we're a part of. So we can't really envision a different world very well because we're only experiencing what we have now. So for instance, if people are criticizing capitalism, it's easy to argue against that because we can't see what the world would look like without it because that's the only world we've imagined. So mm. I think this is one of the things that's so tricky about our movement, about trying to make a difference for animals, is we just don't know what will work because no one's, it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> so it's all hypothetical. Yeah, so I think this is where I get a bit stuck because I definitely will see things on TV and think, oh gosh, I think that doesn't look good for us. Uh, I think hmm. that does look really weird. <laughs> or a lot of times, you know, there's really sexist imaging or, yeah. um, you know, really appropriating other people's oppression in ways that is really inappropriate to try to promote a message. And I'm sure we can all think about organizations that do that a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so so it's so tricky. That's what I'm saying. My my answers definitely change, and there are definitely times in my life where any kind of direct action, I would have said, "Oh gosh, that is embarrassing. Why are they doing that?" Whereas now, I'm definitely interested in direct action and thinking strategically and thinking about if we can actually think about how people change. How do we get this message out there more? How do we actually normalize? 
uh, what right now it seems so abnormal and outside of any idea of what norms are. I mean, you know, for, for people to imagine a world where consuming meat was no longer a part of our culture, we can't even imagine what that would look like. So it's hard to think how we would get there. So that's sort of a, a weird way of slightly answering your question. <laughs> no, 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 it's really good way. I mean, there's a really good, um, I don't know if you watched Simon Amstel Carnage on that journey. That's really interesting on in how we went from a meat dependent uh, society to a fully vegan society where people almost look back in horror that we used to eat meat. But I think, you know, what you said was so true. And I think also on the flip side, you know, your research has shown that one of the most impactful motivations is animal welfare and animals. So do you, did you find a reason why that was particularly impactful on women as well? I'm just thinking from a demographic point of view in terms of the sort of people that will either express an interest in becoming or converting to veganism. And then were there any particular demographics that were more successful in maintaining that actually long-term as a behavior from gender to you know education, maybe from deprivation, were there any sort of, did you find any uh, information on that? Yeah. So uh, to talk about sociodemographics, I have to take a little bit of a step back. So the first thing that's important to note was really the lack of diversity in who we're reaching through these campaigns, mm. which I think in many ways relates to what I was saying about, well, this worked for me. So this is the thing that I think will work. There's so much around nonprofits and who's able to work for nonprofits and the way, you know, I work for a nonprofit, the way nonprofits recruit, et cetera, that means mm. they're often people who are from wealthier backgrounds, often people who are white, often people who are highly educated. They're a lot of women, but often run by men anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would definitely uh, confirm everything you've just yeah, said. <laughs> yeah. You know, almost, there are very few nonprofits where they want, that isn't the case, and they're generally quite small, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so I think when we think about that, it's not surprising that then almost all the people these campaigns are reaching are white. Almost all of them, you know, there was a high, high proportion of high income people and a higher proportion of people who had bachelor's, master's degrees and uh, a large number of women. So uh, less than 20% were men and there were slightly more men in reduction campaigns, which is interesting and suggests, you know, maybe these can help recruit more men and get them interested. Whereas I think in the UK, about 11% of people in the UK are not white. So in this, it was less than 4%. Uh, which okay. is pretty poor. So I think that's the first thing to think about is my research. I didn't look at comparing groups as much for, for a variety of reasons, but one of them was really the lack of diversity really inhibited that in a lot of ways. But one of the things that I was saying before is around stigma, and there's so much great stuff around masculinity and meat from people like Carol Adams. So I think that's one of the big factors. And historically, when we look at how people have gotten into eating meat, it's been wealthier people who eat more meat. So much around consumption is modeled on what the wealthy do. And this is kind of how things can trickle down. So that's how meat has gotten much cheaper. So there's a great book by Ben Rogers. Uh, I think it's called Beef and Liberty. And it talks about how beef has become, gone from being this very elite food in the UK to being the British food that everyone eats, uh, or most people. So th this kind of thing can happen. So um, 
I think that that's how, you know, meat consumption has then become more popular. And then people who are higher income now, we're talking about, they talk about this as kind of the potentially the second nutrition transition. Wealthier people potentially are now the ones who feel that they have the choice to change what they're eating because they've had this option. And now they are perhaps more interested in in changing what they're doing, but also engaging with these campaigns whose messages may be more likely to reflect their own lifestyles, right? So like I said, I jokingly use the example of banana blossom fish, but this is perhaps something that someone from a more wealthy background, perhaps just guessing, might be more interested in these kind of strange recipes that are very time intensive because they might have more resources to spend on buying different ingredients. They might have more time. So I think these are important things to think about in our messaging. And, you know, there are great people out there who have other types of messaging. So Tracy McQuirter, I think, I'm not sure how you last say her last name. I only ever see it in writing, <laughs> but she <laughs> wrote a great book called Buy Any Greens. And she has great campaigns specifically for, I think her goal is to get 10,000 black women to go vegan this year. And she has a lot of great messaging and she's specifically targeting a very different group than these campaigns who are very general and they think they're targeting everyone, but in saying they're targeting everyone, you're targeting what is the norm of society, right? But uh, in terms of, you know, sorry, I, I digress from what I was saying earlier, but in terms of masculinity, I think that that's going to be a huge role in why men are less likely to want to go vegetarian or vegan. And every single bit of research I've ever seen suggests that there are more vegetarian women than men. But, you know, historically, men were the ones who were given meat, the best cut of the meat. You know, women wouldn't always get meat, children wouldn't. So I think it's harder to kind of disconnect this idea of men being masculine. You need to eat meat. What will you do without meat? And I actually had someone say that to me once, and I I, I just couldn't stop laughing. He just said, like, you know, you need meat. And, and I, I forget the way he was saying it, but it was very, like, macho. And I was like, this is hilarious. Like, I can't believe someone's actually saying this to me. Um, he says, great. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so, so another group is in terms of age. So, interestingly, this was one thing that I was really surprised by is there were a lot of people from pretty much every age group everywhere um, in the campaigns. I mean, some of the campaigns specifically targeted university students and younger people tended to be more likely to be vegetarian or vegan or want to be vegetarian or vegan. And I think they generally did better in meeting their goals, which isn't really surprising when we think about, you know, when you're you're at a young age, you may be for the first time being independent, making your own food. You may be in more of a kind of a figuring out who you are phase. So it's easier to kind of embrace this new way of eating, this new lifestyle, new identity. It may, may be more exciting. Whereas if you're, I know a lot of people who are in their 60s who always say to me, you know, like, I totally support veganism. It makes perfect sense. But I'm just too old or I could never change what I do. So I think perhaps <laughs> as you get older, it's it's harder to change your habits. They're really ingrained. They just become more and more ingrained. And it's harder to think, oh, well, I, I there's no point. I'm too old anyway. You know, especially around health and things. A lot of times people who need to eat healthier just don't seem to be able to do it unless perhaps something really significant happens in their life. And then maybe they become motivated. Um, but Angel, you, you, you've just described my mom. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's amazing how many people I know who are 60s plus and totally are on board with the vegan message, but it's somehow completely out of their mind that they would even give up meat. Whereas people who are younger who I'll speak to, who think it makes sense, there's more of an open door often. And it may not be, I'm going to do this now, but perhaps more of a, huh, maybe one day. 
You mentioned something, the significantly high proportion of women, and that's mirrored somewhat in animal welfare organizations where the majority of people that support the organizations donate to the organizations, volunteer for the organizations, and actually in many cases work for the organizations are women. So that parallel there between people wanting to support an organization and then take that step and become vegan or vegetarian. So it's more than just a food thing, isn't it? And so what do you what do you make of that? Because if it's broader than just your food choices and it's more about an issue that you care about that relates more to women than men, how could we go about addressing that? Hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, I think it's hard because that relates so much to so many other social things that we're ingrained with, that men are taught not to seem weak, not to have empathy, not to seem emotional. Um, which are all these things that then get associated with giving up meat. So for instance, a couple people in my focus groups, a couple women described that they had male partners who were vegetarian or vegan, but would never say that, would say something like, I'm plant-based because it's associated with health. And that seems somehow more okay, you know, especially if it's combined with something like vegan games or working out and lifting weights and doing this for my health, not for the animals. I mean, it's tricky. So this is one of the areas where I think when we're looking more holistically, we can think about the type of messaging we're giving. So I was at an event where a male speaker was talking about reaching men. And he was essentially saying, well, the best way to meet, reach men is essentially, without saying these words, but essentially to just uh, perpetuate every kind of masculine stereotype you can imagine. So he was showing all kinds of, you know, really masculine, muscular men and, and trying to say, you know, you can still be like this and be vegan. And these kind of things really worry me because we should be worrying about all types of oppression, right? Like these things are all very much connected. So I think the better way to do this is things like presenting different types of masculinities and linking that with vegetarianism, veganism, and kind of questioning, calling out and showing how ridiculous this masculine meat thing is. I mean, Carol Adams is constantly sharing these hilarious photos of just the most masculine, macho things connected to meat that just look so ridiculous, often so exploitative of women, etc. So, you know, I worry when people kind of take these as a given and think, oh, well, we'll just perpetuate this norm. I don't think that's helping anybody. Uh, that's for sure. And it's not helping us as a movement look like we care about people and we care about making the world a better place. So I think there are definitely ways we can get around this. And I'd be really interested in people trying to explore ways of reaching men that isn't just around being stereotypical in what it means to be male. And I think if there's ways that we can help men get in touch with being empathetic and caring about animals, I mean, that would be that would have so many knock on effects, not just in terms of uh, hopefully eating less meat, going vegetarian, vegan, but in terms of, you know, the way men can relate to the world, etc., and so what do you think, um, based on your research and the organizations that you're working with and seeing the changes that are happening in food choices and the promotion of veganism and plant-based foods, what do you see as the next steps? What do you think the future is going to look like and what do you hope the future is going to look like? Oh, great question. Well, it's hard to answer. Nowadays, it just feels more and more depressing. <laughs> I mean, for, for <laughs> vegan food, things are great. For everything else, things are horrendous. <laughs> In terms of everything that's happening and climate change, you know, we're all just, I think so many of us are just reaching a point of, of such despair about the future. <laughs> so it's hard for me to think positively about the future, but <laughs> I will do my best. Um, I think, you know, I think as these things continue to worsen, 
I think we will have no choice but to change our habits, which we're seeing in many ways, you know, so we have to really change so much about the way we consume, which isn't just about dramatically reducing the amount of animals we're consuming uh, and the way we're treating them and all of this, changing that, but changing everything about the way we think of consumption and how we think that we need, you know, infinite economic growth and infinite options of consuming. I think that's going to have to change. I worry about the ways it could change, you know, so I, I keep seeing things that terrify me. So one thing I saw recently was somebody has invented something you put on cows that essentially somehow absorbs the methane from their burps or something along these lines to reduce the environmental impact so that you can continue to have ridiculous numbers of cows treated horrendously because you're reducing the environmental impact. So I worry about things like that. You know, someone else did some research. I can't even believe that money exists for these things where they were putting virtual reality headsets on cows uh, and they they, they found, they say, that, that it made the cows happier. Surely just giving them a better life would be better. But I worry about these types of things that, that, that people are trying to do so that we can continue along this incredibly destructive path we're on. But I think in terms of environmental impact, things are just getting so, so bad. And we have so little time that I don't see how we can keep this up. I hope. <laughs> I mean, people amaze me in the, in the ways they, they figure things out. But, but I hope that, that we will really have to change things. And eventually, government will have to catch up to what everyone else seems to know, uh, that we have no choice but to make dramatic changes to the way the world is right now. And it's hard to imagine what that will look like. But in terms of campaigning and things I would love to see, I think more of this kind of community-based stuff would be fantastic. So definitely FIAPO in India is a great organization to check out for that. In terms of just building the sense of community that in many ways we seem to be losing, where you have local people supporting each other, sharing meals, doing things like this, that in the end up being so much more sustainable as well. So that's something I would love. I would love... One thing I would really love is thinking really about this engaging with research around theory of change, around systems thinking, around all of this stuff that is so important and we've kind of skipped over because we really often don't know what will be most effective and we have to be flexible around that. So a lot of these nonprofits have strategies that they themselves say, well, we're doing this now because of the way things are, but if things change, you know, then we can do something else. But it's not really clear when they'll know that things have changed enough or what that next step is. So I think all of this really plays a role. And I would love to see more organizations taking a step back to engage with all this research and all this incredible stuff out there. So I know I've already said Animal Think Tank, but definitely check them out. They have some great resources in the UK and they offer some fantastic free trainings. So I think, you know, these are these are some of the things I would be really excited about. I'd be really, really love for more animal organizations to link up with more of the human issues and thinking more about these things in tangent because they are also related. So those are like my hopes and dreams in the context of uh, growing despair <laughs> and impending doom. <laughs> Harry. Matt. That was so interesting, wasn't it? It really was. It was so good to talk to him. He had so many fascinating bits and pieces to discuss about veganism. So many elements about behavior and the drivers and why people do what they do and why we make the food choices we make. 
and yeah it was really really interesting yeah and i think there's a lot there for both people and organizations to take away with them and to think about if veganism is important to you maybe trent will get you to either reflect on how you're maybe currently talking to people if you want people in your family or loved ones or anyone if you want to try and get over and communicate why you're choosing to become a vegan or why it's an important issue to you i think trent has provided so much amazing information but also if you're thinking of having those conversations if you really want to and you know there's somebody potentially that you might want to try and change their eating habits i just think you can't do any better than listen to trent and what i love about trent's work is that he bases it all on human behavior change theory and that's something that both you and i are really passionate about isn't it harry it absolutely is. And you can read more about Trent's work and visit Trent's blog via the link in this podcast. But it's, you know what I liked about it so much? It wasn't even so much about whether you want to convert somebody to veganism or whether you're a vegan or not, but the thoughts and the behavior change and the decision-making aspects of what he was talking about are relevant to anybody that's even thinking about changing their diet, kind of understanding your own motivations towards food, towards animals, towards health, towards the environment. And it's all about just making more sustainable choices and more environmentally friendly choices, whether that's animal friendly or for your own personal health. But just having that information to be able to make those decisions is so important. Definitely. And um, well, so diverse our guests, aren't they, Harry? Where can you find such diversity in a podcast, I tell you? Nowhere. I nowhere. Literally, no, there are no other podcasts that do what we do. No, no. Maybe there's a reason why. But anyway, Harry. Matt. How can people find out more about our podcast, how can they listen to those nine already published podcasts? Well, they just need to go to wherever they listen to podcasts and listen to our podcast. Wow. It's and we that have simple. nine free episodes. Nine. Nine. Well, actually 10, because this is the 10th oh, yeah. episode. So there's 10 of our podcast episodes, wherever you go, whether it's Apple or whether it's Spotify or whether it's Google Play, wherever you listen to a podcast, listen to all the podcasts. They're all there. They're all there. Do it, people. Do it. And next week, Harry. Who... Oh, my God. Next week. I'm You're so excited. So excited about this, I'm so excited. so excited. Go on. She is, she is the daughter of the lead singer of Aerosmith. It's, it's, only, it's only bloody Liv Tyler. <laughs> Mate, that's so funny. It's, isn't that... It literally made me spray beer everywhere. It's Liv Tyler, isn't it? Um, Harry? Yeah. But we've talked about this, mate, and I was trying to I was trying to explain to this in the podcast. It's not Liv Tyler. Who is no, it's Liv Tyler. We spoke no, to no, her. No, I spoke no, to her. No, no, no. It wasn't. Do you remember I sent you the pictures to get you to help you? I didn't bother opening that email. I don't usually open okay. the stuff you so, send me. Liv Tyler yeah. is an international actress. Yes. She's a Hollywood star. Yep. And she slaughters puppies. <laughs> I don't think that's true. She didn't mention that on the podcast. And then we spoke yeah. to Liz Tyson. What did I say? Liv Tyler. And who did we do the podcast with? Liz Tyson. Ah, Liz Tyson. Oh, okay. See the difference? Okay. So, yeah. yeah. So we spoke to Liz Tyson, who was in Lord of the Rings, no, and no, Armageddon. No, no, no. And... no, that's Liv Tyler. I keep saying oh. that. Right, I want you to really listen now, okay? Honestly, I think that I don't know why you deleted that email. A bit annoyed. The, it had a picture of Liv Tyler and a picture of Liz Tyson to help you with words and keywords all over it. Okay. Liv Tyler is an actress. Yes. Very attractive actress and very talented. Mm -hmm. 
Liz Tyson yeah. works for Born Free Foundation. Right. He is managing a primate sanctuary in America. They're very oh, different. It they makes so much more things. sense that she would be a guest yeah. on the podcast. But yeah. like, if she does all of that, how did she find time to be in like the leftovers and those TV shows and things like no, that? No, 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 mate, mate. Okay. We are losing <laughs> listeners by the second here. <laughs> Liz Tyler <laughs> is the actress. Yep. Daughter of Steve Tyler, Aerosmith. Yes, I know. Walk this way. Talk this way. <laughs> Liz Tyson is not that person. Liz Tyson, I don't think Liz has ever been, I don't know, maybe she has. But as far as I know, she's not been in a movie. She's not the daughter of a rock star. She okay. doesn't play an elf. But you know what she is? She's only on next week's bloody podcast. Oh my God, she is. She is. I'm, honestly, she is. But seriously, in all seriousness, it's a really good podcast, isn't it, next really week? Good. Yeah, really good. Liv's, um, Liv. <laughs> Liz Tyson. Yeah, it was really great to speak to Liz. Liz has traveled the world doing her job from South America to Palestine to doing some amazing work to do with captivity here in the UK and is now in Texas managing and overseeing a primate sanctuary as well as recently becoming program manager, I think it was, at the Born Free Foundation in the United States. So Liv has had such a varied career and so intelligent and so just wonderful to chat to. Really was. It was really, even if we had had Liv Tyler on, I don't think it would have been as good a podcast as Liz Tyson. So actually, it's really one to look forward to next week. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really excited to share that podcast with everybody. Exactly, exactly. And in the meantime, like, subscribe, review, share, listen, and enjoy all the podcasts. All of them. All of them. Nine episodes for you Ten to enjoy. Ten episodes. Ten episodes for you to enjoy, folks. <laughs> and we will see you all next week. Yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks a lot, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.